When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. In this week's episode, we're joined by Hillary Clinton's closest aide and advisor, Huma Abedin. Here's the presenter of BBC NewsHour and host Razia Iqbal with more. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Razia Iqbal. I am delighted to introduce you to our guest tonight, Huma Abedin, a woman who, from even before she graduated, was at the heart of American political life. Her public service has spanned the White House, the Senate and the State Department. She has been for many years the gatekeeper to one of the most famous women in the world, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Indeed, she has often been seen in public, but not that often heard from, until of course her private life became very public and her marriage to the disgraced congressman, Anthony Weiner, fell apart. Well, Huma Abedin has written a memoir, and I'm gonna hold it up, both slash and, a life in many worlds. Welcome, Huma. Uh, it's a real privilege and pleasure to be speaking to you today. Razia, I am so thrilled to be speaking with you today. As I mentioned to you before we got on, I listen to you every day. Uh, I listen to you. You're my beacon of, for news in the world. Um, and so I'm so excited when they told me you'd, I'd be in conversation with you. I'm really looking forward to it. And thank you all. Thank you, Connor. And thank you for everybody watching and listening. Thank you very much. Uh, now, I, I, I mentioned that you had often been seen in public life. You're often at the side to Hillary Clinton, whispering something in her ear, having a conversation on your phone. Um, but we don't hear from you that often until, of course, your private life became public material and everybody was interested in your marriage. So in that context, that contrast between the public and the private and being somebody who is behind the scenes, I'm, I just wonder what the impulse was to, to write a memoir that, that was going to have 
to involve you reliving all these some very painful things? Yeah. Well, first, I have to say that writing the book, and this was a surprise to me, I had not anticipated this, but writing the book was actually tremendous therapy for me. I, um, I write about the early part of my life in part because my parents were very big influences. And I think my father always believed I would be a writer. I loved writing. I grew up surrounded by stories. It's how I opened the book. And my father always told me the greatest power I held was the power of my pen if I used it wisely. And so to some extent, it is doing what I believed he uh, always thought I would do. But because you asked the why, and I've, you know, I certainly have thought about this, the, the timing and, you know, I could have written a, a book in 2015, 2016, you know, 2017, certainly, I think it would have been an angrier, more bitter book, given what everyone had read about my personal life in the news. But the main reason was just recapturing my own story. I felt as though I was somebody who is somewhat known in the public space for the last two decades. And other people were writing my story. Other people were saying what I was thinking. And as a result, they were writing my history and I wanted to, to reclaim that. And I was really, uh, you know, happy to reclaim it. I, I've, I've, I've had such a sort of liberating experience being out in the world uh, talking about my book these last few weeks and I've really enjoyed it. But let's talk about the title, Both Slash and A Life in Many Worlds, because the first half of the book is very much about your your childhood, your young adult life and, and your your family, your parents and their parents before them, uh, which is not unusual in a, in a memoir at all. But the reason I was particularly interested in, in the title is because it alludes to what your father once said to you, which is that you are both American and Muslim. And in the book, you are both many things and other things too. But I, but I want to focus on the, on on the um, being American and being a Muslim, and the extent to which that was something that you inhabited with ease. It was, and I and I give it was, and it is, and it is. I give you know to, full credit to my parents. You know, as I write in the book, my father would tell me that our eyes are in the front of our head for a reason: is to look forward, not look in the back. But he did want us to learn from history, just so that we didn't, you know, it informed decisions we made in you know in the future, in the present, in the future. And I carry this weight, and maybe this is a sort of an, a very American immigrant mindset or feeling, or maybe any immigrant experience. My parent, my father. My father came from India, my mother from Pakistan. They came to the United States as Fulbright scholars. They met at the University of Pennsylvania. For them, education was a religion. My mother, you know, her mother fought to go to school. And I constantly am reminded of the sacrifices and the commitment they made to give us the life that they had. And when I was two, I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. That's a long story, but they did end up in Kalamazoo. They were both academics. And we ended up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And when I was two, my father was told, he had five to 10 years to live. He was diagnosed with renal failure. He was told to get his affairs in order. And it's one of the first lines I write in the book. My father was told he was dying. And so he went out and lived. And we, two months later, moved for a one-year sabbatical to Saudi Arabia for my parents to teach at the local university. And the way I was raised ever, like from my earliest memories, was to be curious about the world, traveling to other countries, learning about other cultures, languages, religions, how, you know, my father, we are a Muslim family. My parents are both practicing Muslims, but they never forced anything on us. It was more kind of showing us by example. And in the end, it was um, it was our own choice and their faith was very close to them. So I feel like as I landed in the United States as an adult, as a 17 year old, 
I was a teenager. I had a confidence about, you know, being who I was. My dad always said, you know, people are like plants and a plant is only as good as its roots. If you nourish the soil, nourish the roots, it doesn't matter, you know, rain, storm, the plant is going to be okay. And they really inculcated uh, that into us in our, in our growing years. And as a result, I've carried the whole both and, and I appreciate somebody asking me about that. That is, it is, you can be a Muslim, a practicing Muslim, and also an American patriot. You can be an Indian and a Pakistani. You know, you can be both so many things. It is not either or. And I think at least in this country, we are living in an increasingly either or world. And um, I, I, I'm, I am in the both and space and I will remain there. It's very interesting to hear how you frame it in the context of the polarization that we see, not just in the United States, but, but that space that you occupy clearly shifted post 9-11 and has continued to shift because the rise of Islamophobia in particular it isn't something that you deal with in any great detail, but you're clearly aware of it and you are informed constantly by this idea that you you are a hybrid creature and that pluralism is important to you. But I but I also think that there is there is some sense that that is quite ugly to you. Well, this you know, it's one of the reasons I chose to write in the book these moments of, you know, starting in uh, 1993 with the first World Trade Center bombing, the, you know, my family's experience watching it on TV, living afar. Then when I joined the White House and, you know, the the bombings in Africa, the USS Cole, and then obviously 9-11, as you said, sort of culminating, I watched on the inside for most of this being in government as the Muslim. You know, when I walked into the White House in 1996, there were not a lot of people who looked like me and there were not a lot of people who, you know, practiced my faith. And what I found was an extreme curiosity about who I was, what I believed in, wanting to know more, sending me into spaces and places and countries around the world where I, you know, they believed I brought value. But I did see the darks. I did see how my faith was now being turned into this convenient boogeyman as a result of these horrific acts of terrorism, you know, undertaken by a, a small but very determined group of individuals casting a shadow over my entire faith. And I, it is one of the, maybe Razia, I actually haven't had this conversation with anybody. Maybe it is one of the reasons why I am constantly so proudly an American Muslim government representative. Like this is who we are. It is not the, my entire book, what I try to do, whether it's Hillary or President Obama or even my parents, I'm not telling stories. I'm just showing what it was like, what it was like taking people into those rooms, traveling to Iraq and meeting Iraqi women, traveling to Macedonia and meeting these Kosovar Muslim women. Um, and what it meant, what it meant to me and what it was like. But, but hold on a second, because this is very interesting. You are clearly at the heart of government and you are clearly somebody who was valuable to, 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 to that government and, and, and more than one administration. You spoke Arabic. You're a practicing devout Muslim. And yet against that framework is the idea of America as two things. America is also two things. It's both a threat and it's a promise. And and in that context, I wonder how much you were pulled intellectually, because America 
and American foreign policy, of course, has has wreaked a, a kind of hostility, perceived hostility in many, many parts of the world, which must have made you pause. You know, for me, because of the way I was raised, and I, you know, I even share this in the book that even my parents, when they, my father got on that ship, my mother got on that airplane, they knew this was not the perfect country. They, you know, that despite its imperfections, I mean, they lived through the civil rights movement. They were there for the women's movement. They were here in this country. They saw it convulsing. But I think for the notion that, the principles and values, the basis upon which this country was founded. Getting on that ship, my dad knew that he could practice whatever faith he wanted to do and it would be okay. But they knew it wasn't perfect. I tell the story in the book of us living in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and my parents recounted as this perfect place. And then I share the story of the police showing up at our front door because a brown man was painting the shutters in 1975. A brown man painting the shutters automatically made a neighbor think that there was a burglar uh, coming to our house. So it was this constant both and, you know, constantly uh, knowing I'm serving a country that is trying to do the right thing, but at the same time knowing that, you know, yeah, we have caused plenty of problems and certainly in the part of the world that is very near and dear to my heart. And that is the Muslim world. It's, it's what, you know, my, the foundation my father ran, it was all about the, what, what motivated the, the his thoughts, his beliefs was how do we all convene together? How are we going to live in this world, particularly Muslims? I mean, it was all it was about it is about exploring the um, condition of Muslim minorities around the world. And he was prescient about things like Bosnia. What was it going to be like for the Uyghurs in China and the Rohingyas in Myanmar? And what was it going to be like for young Muslim men in the UK, in in France, in in Europe? It was going to be hard unless we were all seated at the table treating each other as equals, you know, a lack of understanding leads to a a, a lot of things and look where it's led us today. So yes, were there moments where it was hard for me? Absolutely. I mean, let's focus on one moment. I mean, I want to stay with this idea of, of of being American and Muslim for a bit. I mean, we've got lots to lots to cover, but but there were there, at the heart of American politics, there were people who targeted you and your family uh, and and cast suspicion on your family's connections, alleged collection connections with the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, I I think in that that example in and of itself does indicate, doesn't it, that the the way in which Americans, some Americans perceive Islam is still very, very problematic for them. And and, and I wonder if you'll just reflect for us on on how that felt for you and your family and the, and, and the pain that that caused. It was singularly that moment in 2012 when I heard about this letter that five Republican Congress people uh, led by a woman, uh, Michelle Bachman, who was in Congress at the time, was such a shock to the system. It, It may have been the hardest thing I had to endure, and I have certainly had hardships in my life. And in part because if anyone who understands that part of the world, I mean, your name and reputation is so important and to have it sullied in this way, to have it questioned, to raise this, you know, this dark cloud and, you know, my father not being even being uh, alive to defend himself. It was singularly one of the most earth shattering experiences in my life. Because I, at that point, you know, this is 2012, I've been in politics a really long time. I'd seen the ugly, you know, barbs, but I'd also seen, you know, 
at the time, so at the time, John McCain goes to the Senate floor and defends me. Uh, uh, President Obama does the same at a White House iftar. I was not the only Muslim American in government named in, in, in those letters. There were other very accomplished, you know, very successful, um, upstanding Muslim Americans um, who were also in that letter. I just happened to be the most, I think, um, high profile. But it, it wasn't even about me. What, it, what they were both standing up for were the values and the principles upon which this country was founded. It was not OK. But I did see it as a, we had we had become the appetizer. I, I say that whole experience 2012 was an appetizer. And boy, in 2016, in this country, did my faith become, we are the other. It became the other, right? So to motivate the other side, all these extreme, you know, extremists on the other side, we're the Muslims, that they're the other. We are the other. And it's all the more reason why I feel it's important to stand up and, you know, speak up for our values and and teach people. Uh, Razia, I, when I, most of my American friends who are not Muslims who read this book are shocked at what I write. You believe in Jesus? You, you, you believe in Moses? Like all these connections are surprising to some people. Mm, yeah, I'm sure they are. Uh, but maybe that's a result of not so much not knowing that much about Islam, but actually not being that focused on faith generally, because there are so many commonalities between the, the three monotheistic faiths in any case. And it's about willingness, I suppose, to, to, to want to learn. You allude to the fact that, you know, that particular period was very hard for somebody who had clearly had some pretty difficult things to deal with. Let's um let's let's launch straight in and talk about um talk about your very public collapse of your of your marriage. I, I, I want to go back to the point before you got married to Anthony Weiner and he said to you, I am broken and I need you to fix me. You overlooked that. You kind of dismissed it in some ways and, and, and yet it clearly was a sign in retrospect. And of course, 2020, um, you know, hindsight gives us 2020 vision, doesn't it? But I, I, I wonder what you what you think about that now? Well, you know, I've, I've actually said this um, b- before and that I do think a lot of people certainly in this country view my relationship with Anthony from a 2021 perspective, like, aha, you know, we always knew. And, you know, just taking people back, uh, you know, Anthony was my first love. He was the first man I was ever with. He was my first Valentine's date. It was a very unexpected, you know, we became friends first before anything else. And he was a charismatic, dynamic, you know, uh, public servant. He was a member of Congress. And I really, you know, fell in love in a, the most unexpected way. And it was, a, it was a bit of a struggle. I had a, we had faith backgrounds and cultural backgrounds, but also I was so private and invisible and I liked it. You know, part of being a white, you know, a political staffer is to be in the background and is to remain invisible. And I preferred being in that place. And I thought I was with the perfect man. I mean, I, I even now I have conversations with, you know, with my girlfriends here and they're so frustrated at the, what they perceive as their partner's lack of uh, support in certain domestic responsibilities. And, I, you know, in that sense, on the one hand, I have this perfect husband who's, you know, making sure whenever I come back from a trip that the laundry is done and there's hot food on the table and that our child's, you know, all of his needs are taken care of. And he's smart and interesting. And on the other, this destructive behavior was, you know, as I think the world knows, um, just got worse. I didn't understand it. The first time the story broke, I was, you know, not even 12 weeks pregnant. I was carrying his child and I was in shock. And I did not understand the behavior as somebody 
who grew up her entire life maintaining control over herself, having control in the workspace. I didn't understand somebody who could not control their behavior. It didn't, it didn't make sense to me. And it took me a very long time to understand, a very long time, and a lot of, a lot of therapy and, and going through even worse moments. I, I, I wonder, though, at, at what point you, you ever made parallels with the person that you worked with most closely, Hillary, Hillary Clinton, whose husband also had weaknesses, sexual weaknesses that became very, very public and resulted in his impeachment. And he also lied about that initially, a lie that you were prepared to, to, to believe. And I, and I wonder whether you ever see those things as being not identical because you, you, you're not Hillary Clinton, but, and you weren't in that position, you weren't first lady, but I just wonder to what extent you, you look back on that now and just think, well, yeah, that there is a, there is a mirroring here. You know, I think no two circumstances are the same. Obviously I don't see it from that perspective. I know I, I, I understand why, uh, you know, the parallels are, you know, being commented upon now, but I take myself back to that time in the white house and I chose to write about impeachment and in part because my professional, all these milestones in my professional growth kind of matched the revelations in that investigation. And in that moment, here I was 21 years old, had no understanding of what it was like to be in a relationship, had no sense of the heartbreak or devastation that my boss was going through. So the reaction I had was really to be there for her to just, you know, the way I could make her life easier was by doing my job really well. And so I write, you know, actually in the book is that I would watch these things on TV about what was happening in the investigation. And it felt like a parallel reality. That's not what I saw on the inside, because on the inside, we were getting up every day, serving the American people. Hillary Clinton was traveling around the world, championing rights for women and children. It, it didn't compute. So to me, when I was in my own situation, which I, I agree was very different, I, I was just in this world of you know, and it was this anomaly. I mean, people had been heard and, you know, sex scandals were not, un, sadly, not uncommon in, in the public space, not just in politics, but other industries. It, it was this online, this digital, this new world. I mean, these portals through which um, Anthony's behavior, you know, really started didn't exist uh, the year before uh, we got married and but I also I also wonder about all of that, you dealing with all of that in the context of your devout Muslim upbringing. I mean, you know, there is there is a level at which any person going through that would feel publicly humiliated, wanting to just shy away from it. But but this was happening to somebody who had was not hugely experienced in terms of relationships. You had thrown your lot in with a man who was a, uh, an American Jewish politician and, and you were a devout Muslim. And in that context, the sexual um, embarrassment that all of that caused, I, I can imagine must have been deeply perturbing to you as well as to your family. You know, as I write in the book, you know, I spent a lot of time, even after Anthony proposed, I mean, really 
uh, considering it, it, it was a it was a real reflection on whether this was the right choice for me. And I I even write how I tried not to see him and and how miserable that was. And in part, it's why I tell the funny stories of all the um, ways that he accommodated me and my. I mean, he was fasting with me during Ramadan. He you know he gave up pork and alcohol. All these which he just volunteered to do. He, I felt so close to him because I felt as though he was really trying to embrace, um, I was committed to embracing a way of life that would make for uh, this, you know, a life together, a partnership together forever. And it did bring, and because you use the word, there's two chapters in the book, shame, shame, go away and elephant in the room. And there is a tremendous amount of shame. I don't believe what I went through is singular to me. I think, unfortunately, betrayal and online betrayals are, uh, are just a, a reality in life these days. Um, I just had to do on the front page, the newspaper and, and why I share the story of us being together in Texas. And the first time we were outed on the street and having to hear these nasty comments from people, you know, I quickly found after the first experience that we, even though we had such a supportive family and a, a huge community of friends, no one really knew what to do or say. I mean, people would show up. I write the scene of people, would, you know, I ordered dinner the first night and everyone just wanted to leave. Nobody. How do you, you know, how do you deal with a couple in this situation? And so we really were in a bunker alone. And the more we felt shunned by society, you know, I talk about volunteering at a food bank and after showing up a couple of times being told we weren't welcome there anymore. I mean, to not even, you know, be welcome in a charitable organization, that just made us more, you know, insular in some ways it actually brought us closer, especially knowing that I was growing a child inside of me. So, so that was, we're, we're talking about 2011, but after that, of course, the, the, the habits that uh, Anthony Weiner uh, was engaged in uh, escalated. And by 2016, when Hillary Clinton and you were at the heart of her campaign was campaigning, um, the, 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 the felony for which he was convicted, uh, which was sexting uh, a 15-year-old girl, resulted in it being an even bigger political story because, of course, the, the investigation into him resulted in emails between uh, or your emails being found on his laptop. That, of course, provoked James Comey, the FBI director, to open, reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton. In that incredibly febrile atmosphere, did you at any point consider stepping back or resigning or saying, you know, this is a distraction. We're really close to the election. This should not be the thing that the American public should be focusing on. Well, as I write in the book, I did. I offered my, you know, in 2013, after Anthony's uh, mayor's race collapsed, um, I was told, you know, by several people, I heard rumors, I didn't know who they were. And, you know, in part, I had, I had encouraged him to run for mayor in 2013, which is why when it all fell apart, I did do the press conference with him. I know a lot of people were very unhappy that I did that. But back then, I mean, again, I'm who, who was unhappy that you did that? Who inside your inner circle? They haven't revealed themselves to me, but I share the story in the book or I call Cheryl, uh, you know, a close advisor of, of Hillary's and a dear friend of mine. And uh, and said, I'm hearing these rumors. And she said, yes, uh, there are people who are unhappy about what you did. And, and it, it seems untenable that you can remain in your job. But given your relationship, Hillary should let you go herself. 
And so I share the story of driving out to her house, thinking it's the last time I'm going to go and all the moments and, you know, all the places, the coffee shops we used to visit, the last, you know, I took my little boy with me and watched him play with the puppy. And I went inside, you know, to be fired. And she surprised me by essentially saying that um, though people had said um, I should be fired, that she didn't believe it was the right thing to do, that I was good at my job and that I was, you know, valuable to her. And more than that, she didn't think I should, you know, pay for a mistake that was not mine. Um, that, that was my husband's. And in that moment, I had encouraged him to run because I had figured as I had learned in, you know, whatever therapy sessions we'd gone to is that people struggled with this compulsive behavior. And it didn't mean they didn't have to go out in the world and, and participate professionally. And I thought this was a way back for him. It was a mistake in hindsight. Do you think that Hillary Clinton said that to you? You know her very, very well. Do you think she said that to you because her instinct was that she herself should not pay for her own husband's uh, peccadilloes? Every time I've had a challenge in my life, personal challenge especially, she has approached it, I have felt, as a friend first and as a boss second. And you know, I share the stories in the book. It's why I share the conversations where the first thing she has said is take care of yourself and your child. Um, but whatever you do, whatever you choose, I'm here to support you. She's never tried to get me to do one thing or another. It's more of I'm here. And if you need me, I'm um, just let me know. And I've, I've appreciated um, having that because I tell plenty of stories in the book of people who had very strong feelings about how I should act and not act. And it really did something to me that does something to you. This, you know, the feeling, the elephant in the room, the feeling unwelcome feeling, you know, conversations uh, stopping. And, you know, since you asked, I did offer my resignation again in 2016. I write the story of after the unprecedented announcement that the uh, then FBI director made 11 days before the election, that just shook up a race, even though there were other investigations going on. And it was so hard for me. I was in such a state of shock that I couldn't even feel. I felt selfish to feel anything. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. Do you, do, I mean, certainly Hillary Clinton has said many times since that uh, defeat uh, of the 2016 election that she, she in part holds James Comey responsible for that defeat. I, I wonder whether you, in your darkest hours, have looked back and thought, I should have insisted and I hold myself responsible a little. Absolutely. And I write about it in detail in the book. I I write about uh, it that moment. I write about, you know, calling 
Anthony, who was away and he didn't have any access to television or news and he had no idea what I was talking about. And uh, I a hundred percent said, if she loses it, it will be our fault. And um, in an election that close, every little thing mattered. And this was a big, big thing. And then for two days before the election, for there to be another announcement that says, you know, we've reviewed everything and there's nothing here and the investigation is closed again, really energized the other side, really got them activated and motivated to, you know, to turn out. And it did make a difference. And so, uh, yes, what she says is right. I carried that with me. It took me to a very, very dark place. But I've, I've had to let go of that. I've had to, you know, people have asked, I mean, this book maybe would have, you know, uh, been newsier. I don't know what the right word is if I had written it sooner, but I don't think I was ready. And I don't, I don't think the story would have been as good. I had to get to the other side. I had to get to my lowest point. I had to carry that guilt, that shame, that blame, but I had to, I had to settle it. I had to work through it and get to the other side. And, um, and that's why I'm able to sit here and talk to you about it today. It's, it's quite clear that your devotion and your loyalty to Hillary Clinton in particular, but the Clinton family as a whole, I mean, Bill Clinton officiated at your wedding with Anthony Weiner, is, is, it comes through page after page after page. But I, I, I wonder about, I wonder about that, that choice, because you yourself must have been aware that there are people who really doubted the way in which the Clintons operated, the way in which Hillary Clinton came across on the campaign trail. I, I wonder to what extent you were, you were aware that people might look at this book and say, well, on one level, it's a hagiography when it comes to Hillary Clinton. Well, you know, I approached my reflections on Hillary and the Clinton family as I said, I think earlier, it, from a, a show not tell perspective, I'm not telling you she's amazing. I'm not telling you he did this. I'm not telling you. I'm just showing you what it was like. I, I part of you know what I loved about writing the story is I wanted to take people into those rooms. I wanted to take people into those rallies as we walked in, and you felt the goosebumps, and you carried people's hopes and dreams and secrets and fears. Like still, there's nothing more rewarding than that feeling what it felt like. I also share the, you know, there's a scene in the book, actually when I'm, I'm in London and uh, I get, I get up and I'm, you know, I'm terrified of public speaking. This is the thing that scares me the most talking publicly things that scare me. You know, I write in the book, like I was shaking before I had to go out. So I get up and I give this speech on her behalf as a surrogate in London. And when I sit down, a woman comes up to me and she's like, I don't understand. Why doesn't Hillary talk about herself this way? Like, these are amazing stories you're telling. And I, you know, I said it then and I say it now. She never thought any of this was about her. She was all, she was so mission driven that she didn't, the caricatures, we were aware of them. And look, I grew up in the Clinton world of politics. So in the 1990s, with the emergence of cable news, 24 hour cable news, you were constantly trying to drive the proactive message of the day. So you did not acknowledge the nonsense. Fast forward to 2016, we live in a 24 second news cycle now with social media, now with so much information. So as all of these caricatures kept building and we kept saying, oh, my God, this is crazy. No one's going to believe she's dying. No one's going to believe, you know, Pizzagate. What you we didn't really appreciate in the moment 
was that people did and these and these these things seeded sure they did they they it's absolutely true that people latched onto all kinds of things and they do in every single political campaign in in countries all over the world but but there is a central piece of this that 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 isn't really tackled in the book and i and i'd really like to ask you about it that that there was a general consensus that there was a chasm between what you are saying about hillary clinton and how she connected or did not connect with the public. And I I covered the 2016 campaign and in a very small school hall in New Hampshire, Bill Clinton came on and introduced her with Chelsea. And, and he, of course, was charisma personified. And I feel reluctant to say this because people will automatically say, oh, well, of course, people think that about the man, but don't think that about the woman. She came on and it was there was a decided drop in the temperature. And I think that, in a way, is one of the things that I wonder why you didn't tackle, because you were at the heart of the campaign. You were one of her advisors. Well, I write about this. I, you know, first of all, let me tell you, my editor will back me up here. The book was longer. A lot was cut. (laughs) It's 500 pages, everyone. (laughs) 500 pages. And so anyone ever I tell somebody who's read the book, they fall out of their, their chair. And there was a lot more about my early life. And I, I did I did end up having to cut a lot about my boss because in the end it was sort of this is your book and if it's not you know you're not central this particular passage you have to go it has to go and there were several of those but you know Rosie I would argue that it is one of the things because I do carry a little um, resentment about um, how she is somehow you know. That people forget, first of all, in 2008, that this woman made history in New Hampshire for women and girls in this country for generations, like full stop period. I, it breaks my heart when I talk to young people and they'll say, I didn't even remember she ran for president in 2008. I thought that was, you know, Senator Obama and John McCain. And that was an incredible, you know, election. And obviously, um, President Obama made history. The argument I make, and maybe, you know, I I did not do this well enough, is that I do think it was very hard. I think it was hard as a woman for her to run. She was not a natural. On the one hand, she's married to, I argue, one of the greatest communicators um, of his generation, followed by another greatest communication communicator of his generation with President Obama. So it, it is hard to be compared to them. And in fact, it's why I tell all these stories about people calling and saying, she needs to talk louder. She needs to talk lower. She needs longer jackets. She needs shorter jackets. Put her in T-shirts. Don't put her in T-shirts. She needs makeup, less makeup. I don't like her hair. Everybody had an opinion. So in part, you know, in 2008, we did not know how to deal with all the incoming. So when people said your jacket is ugly or you're likable enough, or when you come on TV, I want to cross my legs, nobody knew how to deal with it. In fact, I even say we didn't. And that's the argument I make in the book is that we just laughed giggled sort of nervously because there was no outrage. There was no, this woman is qualified. She does deserve to be at this debate. She does deserve to be at the table. We ignored it. And as a result, I do believe, you know, quite strongly that sexism played a role in her defeat in 2008 and in particularly in 2016. I mean, uh, the story that people who've read the book that almost anyone who've had a long conversation with are shocked by is a story I tell about a male media consultant who says she looks angry when she goes on stage. So I have a suggestion. You should take a photo of her grandchild and put it on her speech. And then she'll look happy because she'll be happy. And it was this constant impossible. Whenever I ask people, who do you want her to be like? 
it was always two people, her husband and President Obama. But it, but it is interesting to me that, that, you know, you don't include President Trump as an effective communicator in your list of people who's an effective communicator, because he was. You, whatever, whatever you think about his politics and whatever you think about his polarizing uh, ways, he managed to reach people who then voted for him, not just in the election that he won, but in the last one, you know, 70 million plus people voted for President Trump in the in the election that Joe Biden won. And, and I just wonder about the extent to which your campaign at the heart of it actually didn't really understand America, didn't understand how America had changed. Well, also, I mean, just to remind people, 2016, many millions more people voted for Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. Let, let's just be clear. It's not that- The popular you know, vote, absolutely. Yes. She won. That's true. But she didn't win the election. That's right. I mean, that that is a whole separate conversation about the Electoral College. Absolutely. Our system of electing a president is run in this country, which I I unfortunately don't foresee changing anytime soon. So let's start there. I I do take an issue when, uh, you know, people somehow think that she doesn't connect in that. If she's not connecting, how do you have 66 million people vote for you in 2008 when even she and President Obama, everyone thinks, uh, you know, he ran away with it. It was amazing. He was amazing. But that was a very, you know, tight election. So in terms of connecting with people and actual human beings, bodies and numbers voting for her, those are large numbers. Those are numbers that very few Americans can say they can match. But but it was damaging. It was damaging, wasn't it, for her to call the people who voted for Trump as deplorables? I mean, it was hugely damaging. But I want to I want to because you asked about Trump and being an effective communicator, what I believe he did. And this is my personal opinion, is that, number one, it was. And that's why I write that scene in the book about the first time we turned the TV on to actually watch him in the midst of a very. Uh, you know, crowded Republican primary. It was in part entertainment, in part showmanship, and in part you were watching because you did not know what the next, you know, really provocative thing would come out of his mouth. That's not why you were turning on the TV. That's not why people would argue Bill Clinton was an effective communicator. I think people would say, when you were in a room, when I, in 1999, if I walked into the East Room of the White House, or if I went to a rally in Iowa and Bill Clinton was speaking, I thought he was talking to me. I thought when he was explaining a program about healthcare, education, college, I got it. That's why he's been called the explainer in chief. President Obama made me feel like anything was possible, that the world could be a better place, a a fairer place, and you had that sense of hope and possibility. Yes, it was effective communication. I think he seeded a lot of fear in people, though what is gonna happen? I traveled the country in 2016 on behalf of the campaign. I would go, into Muslim communities, Muslim American communities, and give speeches about the threat the other side posed. And the reaction, as I write in the book, from people was, this is a very passionate speech that you're giving, but it's a bit dramatic. I mean, he's not gonna do any of these things that he's saying, it's just, you know, entertainment. So I would argue it was a different kind of communication and it worked. And I I do think a lot of it was the fear. It was instilling fear in people and it, it, I, I agree with you, Rosie. It, it worked uh, effectively. And, uh, and, and we ended up with four years of what I believe is a national trauma. Obviously, I've got many more questions, but we're going to turn now because we've got about 15 minutes left to, to questions from the audience. 
<laughs> um, so, so here's one, just a, a, a starter. Uh, do you think that there is a particular male sexual entitlement, entitlement in politics or is it just in society at large? I don't think it's specific to politics, in my opinion. I think generally, and there is research, there are studies that show this, that generally we have a hard time seeing women in executive leadership positions. It's why it's hard for women to become president, mayors, you know, CEOs, you know, how many Fortune 500 CEOs are women? You know, it is how I end the book. If those of you who are watching, if, you know, I hope, because I do end on our vice president, you know, and what she represents to us in this country in the future, but also this notion that unless we change our conscious and unconscious bias towards women, unless we teach our boys not to be afraid of women's power, things are not going to change. We're not going to have more women at the table in our country. Well, well, here's a here's a question directly relating to that. Do you think in the context of everything that you've said about women at the heart of politics, do you think a woman can be president in the United States? And and what advice do you give to the Democrats who will likely go against Trump again in 2024? Oh, my God, I don't I'm not going to I'm not going to predict the future. And I hope that there's not a Democrat that has that goes against uh, President Trump. But I do think I want I remain hopeful that a woman will be president. I think it's going to be very hard. I just look at 2020 and we had a slate of, you know, stars, rising stars, you know, extremely qualified women. And they 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 uh, had a hard time. Does that tell you that that American society, because, of course, there have been female leaders in other countries in this one, for instance. I mean, I, I just wonder whether you think that there is there is a kind of particular kind of misogyny or the misogyny manifests itself at the voting booth in a way that perhaps it hasn't elsewhere. So this is something I don't talk, reflect on my book, and I'm certainly not an expert. I, I think there are other countries uh, such as yours where you have leaders chosen by their peers. You know, it's really a party that you're, you know, you're putting forward. And here it's all about you want to fall in love. You want to find the candidate that, you know, animates you. I, I think misogyny, unfortunately, is an international epidemic. It's not specific to the United States, but in, in our country, it has been especially hard for women the way our system is set up. Uh, you know, to break through. So this is a question from Sarah. With writing this book, you have gone from being a private to a public figure. You were passionate about politics in 2016. Would you ever go back into politics? I mean, you're still in politics, aren't you, really? I think to some extent I will always be. I write in the book that in 2020 I, I was watching everything from afar and really having a hard time being on the outside after being at the center of the universe for so long. So yes, I'll always, you know, I'll, I'll always be there to help if anybody needs help. I don't think it's going to be my full-time, my full-time life, but uh, it's, there's nothing better than, at least for me, that being in public service, participating in some way. I, I interviewed the uh, Facebook uh, whistleblower, Francis Haugen, yesterday, and, I, and here's a question about social media and Facebook. Do you think that Hillary lost because she didn't understand Facebook and how social media impacts on elections and people's opinions now? I, I don't, you know, again, I don't think there's any one thing. It was the perfect storm uh, of things. The, when we were in the campaign, when she was saying there are things happening at Facebook, these ads, these fake ads, people were looking at us saying, it's not really possible. You guys are crazy. Just like when she suggested that there was a, a interference from another country, all these things are not proven to be factual. So I would actually argue that she was prescient about some of these things. 
I don't think in the, I, I know, I disagree that she didn't understand that it was Facebook, that she didn't understand Facebook. I think it was, there were active external forces working to defeat her. Here's, here's another question, which I, I think will probably take us to the to the beginning or the first half of your book, which is really about your family. When you were growing up, who was uh, who was an inspiring figure to you? I mean, I, my, my gut instinct tells me that you're going to say your father. You know, I say this, you know, my father was larger than life and he died just before I left for school, for college. But and he was sick for most of my life, even though I thought he was Superman. But I write, my mother aided and abetted the illusion. I, my mother was superwoman. She made everything possible. You know, you know, she got him his kidney transplant. I mean, that is, she did everything. And so for me, it's honoring. I start with the matriarchs in my family and I end with them. You know, the notion of, of choice, you know, one woman's choice to demand to be educated 100 years ago landed me in the center of the White House. I write about the first time, the first thing I did on behalf of my country was greeting the Bangladeshi prime minister in the center room, in the center of the most powerful house in the world. And I owe that to them. I, I owe those to the, I owe that to the women in my family. So a combination of my mom and my dad, I would have to say. So this is a question about your, the, the, what you say in your book in particular, the quotes you have, you have quotes from writers ranging from Wallace Shoyinka to, well, I can't think of any others off the top of my head, but they're, they're, they're really pretty inspiring. And that. The, the question is, is there a book that was in your mind more than others when you were writing your own? You know, there was an epilogue to this book going back to, I'm, not, I'm now, Razia's head's going to explode. There was an epilogue. <laughs> in addition, <laughs> there was also an epilogue. And the epilogue, I write in detail about all the people who inspired me to share my story. Because I've always loved memoir. I, 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 I dive into people's stories. I'm fascinated by them, by you know, their decisions and choices and actions in their life. And so there were several. One of them was um, Shonda Rhimes in her year of saying yes, the kind of she encouraged me to write my book. Obviously, one of them, the, you, know, you mentioned Wallace Sayinka. I, I quoted a lot of writers who I read growing up, the books that my parents brought back. And then, you know, some of my contemporaries, like Rupi Carr and Cleo Wade, who are, you know, these dynamic, brilliant young women who I know, people who just, you know, Najib Mahfouz, uh, I read a lot uh, when I was, uh, was growing up, but there was a, 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 a there's a, an author named Elizabeth Lesser, um, a journalist as well, who wrote a book called Marrow about donating her, her uh, giving her marrow to her sister that just is the most beautiful story of love and commitment and sisterhood. So all of these people, inspired me to write my story. So here's a question. Here's a question from Sarah. Uh, what advice would you give to young women going into politics today? I think, well, two things. I would say, number one, um, I would quote my father again, which is a, a good life is a balanced life. I did not know that. I actually think this next generation is better about that. I write a chapter in the book where I'm at a family wedding and get a call asking if I want to go to Argentina for work. And I, of course, left the wedding and jumped on that plane and went to Argentina. And for 25 years, did that over and over and over again. I always picked work and family and friends came last or, you know, came second. And I think if I had to go back, it's the one thing I would, I would adjust. So try to, you know, try to find that balance and politics is not for the, you know, for the faint hearted. But what I will say is the only way the system changes is by participation newer, younger voices, opinions, perspectives come to the table 
that's how things change. I, I wonder about the, the the choice of the kind of memoir that you have written, because everybody in the book, uh, apart from your father, is no longer is, is still alive. And so that that feels like a different kind of responsibility that it puts on you of the kind of memoir you want to you want to write. And the book's dedicated to both your parents and to your son, who is still very young. To, to what extent were you were you thinking, well, this is a book that I would welcome my son reading? You know, my son is growing up at a time, you know, my father was terminally ill and we did not know. My parents protected us from that, but I, we don't live in that world anymore. I can't protect my son, you know, from hard truths. I share the story in the book when his father was in prison, being teased about um, his father being away and marveling at his sense of resilience and, uh, and actually maturity when he said, at least he's taking responsibility for his mistakes, both his father and I have decided that we are going to be sources of truth for him. There's plenty he's going to read about both of his parents as he gets older and as he can Google things. And I hope when he is old enough to read this book, that he will read it and say, I'm really proud of my mommy and what she tried to do and proud of this history, this legacy, this family I came from. And I'm glad she tried to help my dad because I think if you don't understand, if you don't have somebody in your life, you know, a friend, a partner, a father, a child who has challenges with mental health or addiction, you don't understand. And that's fine. You're blessed. I actually say to people, I, I envy you. But if you do, you'll understand. And I think my son, I don't want any cycles to repeat themselves. And so for me, I want him to feel loved and supported and be told the truth. And I think he'll be okay. At least, uh, you know, God willing. You, you've, um, inshallah, you have, you have clearly um, overcome your nerves in terms of public speaking. I'm talking to you, Razia. <laughs> so, hello. So <laughs> I wonder, I wonder yeah. whether given how much you have been in the world of politics as a, a backroom staffer, I wonder whether writing this book and being a public person now, because you've basically said to people, I've written a book about the things that have happened to me in my life. To what extent that might result in you wanting to go into politics in front of the microphone and, you know, in a full fronted way? You know, this is the problem when you quote people like Shonda Rhimes and say, this is my year of saying yes, because I got in trouble here on my very first live TV morning show and I was shaking and cold and had no idea what I was saying. And so when uh, Savannah Guthrie asked me, this is your year of saying yes. So will you you know, run for office? And of course I said, yes, because that was supposed to be the answer. And then immediately <laughs> said, wait, yes, but no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I don't see myself doing that. I mean, I want to be open. I want to be open to new experience. And that's one of the things about putting myself out in the world. I feel like I really limited myself in many ways. I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to be open to new ideas and thoughts. You know, I was thinking about calling Christian Amanpour up and seeing if she had ideas. Cause you know, my dream was to be her when I was a little girl, I write this in the book. I saw her. Sometimes you have to see things to imagine it's possible for yourself. And as a little girl sitting in Saudi Arabia on the floor of her apartment, seeing a woman come on TV who looked like, wow, I mean, this is amazing. And everyone else I saw was either covered or, you know, didn't look like me. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of excited about what the next year is going to bring. Well, I wish you well with it. One final question, and I sort of feel like the answer may be a, a fantastic way to end because of the pain that you have gone through in all kinds of different ways. The question is, what role has forgiveness played in your life? I would still be 
a broken, angry, bitter person if I had not been taught that radical empathy is an important thing to have in your life. And I, I, um, I've had to forgive. I've had to forgive a lot. I had to forgive what at one point I thought was the unforgivable. And I had to do it the hardest way, which is instead of running away, instead of not wanting to know, instead of being closed, you know, women stop me on the street. People, mostly women stop me on the street all the time. When does it stop? When do I know when to go? When does the, when does the pain stop? And so you have to find your way forward. It's not easy for most of us um, who've had to deal with it. But I mean, presumably your faith played a really big part in this. Absolutely. Oh, Razia, my faith carried me through. I mean, what is Muslim uh, prayer but meditation, stepping back, reflecting on your life, on your intentions? I mean, that is essentially it is a conversation between you and a higher power, but it really forces you to reflect on some of the choices and actions you're going to make. And my faith absolutely saved me. There's no question um, it did. And it allowed me to be this person. It got me through to this uh, place. I'm so grateful for it. Huma Abedin, thank you very much indeed for sharing your life and your thoughts with us today. And the book again, there it is. Beautiful picture of you on the front. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's been wonderful speaking to you. And thanks everybody for sending in questions. And uh, thank you very much for being with us today. Bye-bye. Thank you. So enjoyed this. Thank you, Razia. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.